One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. Come down to Anfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you Johnny man? Thanks for joining us in the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast ahead of a weekend of big Premier League derby games. Ken Early's here with me. Hey, on, how are you doing? Good I'm doing better. Good to see you, Ken. I'm doing better than Liverpool's goalkeeper, Simon Mignolet, although he can't say that he's not match-hardened for the game against Everton after standing a goal for 15 penalties against Middlesbrough on Tuesday night. Unfortunately, he only saved one of them. <laughs> Never before in the history of English football has a goalkeeper seeing the ball flash past him into the net so many, so many times, apart from Blackman, who was the other goalkeeper, <laughs> who conceded one more than Mignolet in the night. He did make a save from the penalty spot. Early doors. Wasn't it an early one? It was one of the first five, yeah. Um, but uh, maybe it was even the first one. I'm trying to trying to remember. Mm-hmm. But um, Mignolet, I mean, it was it was a really weird thing to, to see. It was You're watching and thinking... Why do the goalkeepers keep diving before the ball is kicked? At some point, you just got to say, all right, this isn't working. I mean, particularly Blackman, he kept going right and the ball kept going left. Just kept happening. And you're thinking, why are you doing this? Why not just say, okay, if I, if I don't move, there's a, there's a chance it's coming down the middle and there's a chance it's going to be badly placed and maybe it's better to gamble on those chances rather than the alternative, which is to you know, hope, hope that you guess the right way, in which case you still mightn't even get it. Um, I don't know, especially in a situation like that where there's so many penalties being taken, why just keep doing the same thing when it's just not working at all? I'm always dubious about the idea that goalkeepers are under no pressure during shootouts. We hear this a lot, particularly around World Cup time, especially in this case. I think the pressure does start to creep in after 10 or 11 penalties have whizzed by you when you've only kept one of them out and he, he looked quite glum in his post-match interview. I mean, yeah, yeah, he did. Um, I mean, I think... You know, he's the tide is turning on poor old Mignolet. Really? Yeah, you get that. You very much get that feeling. You know, uh, I mean, the thing that happens, when, you know, when a club is is uh, not playing very well, and particularly in Liverpool's case, this goals against Clyne uh, continues to be a concern, and they're no longer scoring several goals a game as they were for the second half of last season. Uh, someone has to be blamed. Somebody's going to have to take a fall for that, and. Is it going to be Lovren? They just signed him for twenty million. Is it going to be Sacco? Well, they signed him relatively recently for quite a lot of money too. Is it going to be Skirtle? Well, maybe could, could be Skirtle, <laughs> although he hasn't he hasn't played in all these games. Uh, the fullbacks are new, so it won't be them. Um, Mignolet. Mm. There's also Rogers, and there's also arguably Gerard as well. Um, all of these players have a, have a role to play, but at the moment it, it seems as though poor old Mignolet is the one teetering on the brink. Standing beside Mignolet in the post-match interview, almost below him, I should really say, beaming away was tiny little Jordan Rossiter there. Delighted for this little lad. Uh, he scored a goal after only 10 minutes of his debut, and if we were in any doubt that this was a local Liverpool fella made good, I think his accent might have put this to bed. Yeah, to be honest, I couldn't have dreamed of that, you know, scoring the first 20 minutes of the game on my first start. Yeah, really, was the name come to do. That's that's pretty scarce. Now that is that is going to warm the hearts of every Liverpool supporter to see this uh, young man 
at the heart of their midfield with a Steven Gerrard type hairline as well. <laughs> um, a little bit smaller than Steven Gerrard, but that's that's okay. You can be small in the in the modern game. Uh, an Everton supporter, which is very important, because um, you know when you look back, most of them, most of the really great Liverpool players have been. I mean, Gerrard is maybe an exception, uh, but Ian Rush, Michael Owen, Robbie Fowler, Stephen Bannon are all Everton fans, and so Rossiter is uh, in, in a fine tradition. Even even I can, even I who is uh, notoriously bad at picking out accents, can recognise that guy as a, a Liverpool Liverpool lad. If you remember an interview I did a number of years back then with Terry Phelan. Yeah. Uh, chatting away for 10, 15 minutes with the great Terry Phelan. Lovely guy. Uh, towards the end, I threw something at him along the lines of, oh, yeah, that's that's the old scouse wit you'd be well known for, Terry. Yeah. And he said, I'm from Manchester. I'm literally the most Manchester-sounding man in the world. Mm. It's basically, Terry. Well, number one, Terry Phelan. Number two, Frank Sidebottom. And I mean... Well, no, well, Terry Christensen, surely. Terry, well, Terry, Terry Christian, he was up Terry there. Terry Christian, I should say. Yeah, yeah he, he he was up there uh, too. I mean, but yeah, Phelan was was Phelan extremely was pretty, Manchester. Yeah, was very Manchester sounding, and I managed to screw that up. Yeah, number three, that guy, uh, <laughs> that guy on the on the. Yeah, you got the job on the technicality. Oh yeah, the who apparently John Bruin, a correspondent of ours, uh, frequently uh, used to sit near at Old Trafford. Uh, he had the he had the benefit of many years of that man's. <laughs> oh, dear. That man's commentary on proceedings. Uh, apparently, <laughs> just a very trenchant individual who would, uh, who would, um, you, what you heard in that post match interview uh, when he that he gave to some lads outside the ground, uh, the people around him in Old Trafford had been hearing for many, many years. <laughs> you got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. You are nothing, you are a fool, you are a waste of time. Good night. <laughs> so that was him. Uh, Pretty much for 90 minutes, week in, week out. I'm amazed John Bruin continued to attend games at Old Trafford, I must say. The series four bearers there. We look ahead to the Merseyside Derby with Tony Barrett of the Times and we'll be chatting to Jonathan Wilson, Ken, about what about tactical analysis of football, which is, you could argue, it's become the dominant strand of football conversation in the last couple of years. Well, one of the, I mean, it certainly compares to before, having come really out of, out of nowhere, um, in English football, that is. I mean, in English football, there wasn't really discussion of this. Um... In in Italy, there always kind of has been. Yeah. I I wonder why it is. I mean, I, I think part of it has to do with the kind of media culture, but the media culture in um, in England is quite different from from how it is in other countries. I was reading this book recently, uh, "Hack Attack" by Nick Davis. Nick Davis is the Guardian journalist who was um, the kind of main instigator of the phone hacking story. You know, that sort of led to the Levison Inquiry, and this is like his book about mm-hmm. that. And uh, he makes quite an interesting point at the beginning of it where he's trying to get to why it is that England has such a, let's say, vibrant uh, media culture, right, in terms, in terms of newspapers. The English newspapers are famously aggressive, um, you know, uh, a big part of the culture mm-hmm. in a way. And he said, well, it actually has to do with trains. Go on. Um, he said, essentially, the advent of train uh, travel um, meant that you could print a newspaper in London or in Glasgow and in the morning somebody in Glasgow or in London could be reading that newspaper, it having been brought up on the train uh, overnight, which meant that all of these um, uh, newspaper titles, or the, the big newspaper titles in England are all national titles. So they kind of compete on a national level. Whereas in, say, the United States, um, if you print a newspaper in New York one evening put it on a train, by the time it gets to the next morning, it's still on the train in the middle of nowhere. So they only ever had kind of city newspapers. So they have one or two, three, maybe max, newspapers per city, which meant that the level of competition between the titles was much less. You know, it was much more about sort of advertising, get your stable advertising um, relationships and kind of keep making money that way. Whereas in, in England, because they were all, you had, you know, 12 national newspapers all competing with each other pretty intensely, it sort of pushed the game to, you know, pushed the whole sort of news game to to a new level of competition and arguably viciousness as they tried to commit, particularly the tabloid end where sales are so important that you're trying to get like uh, 
everyone is competing really hard for these stories. So they're kind of, you know, people are eventually, ultimately out there going through your bins and hacking your phone. Okay, okay. I mean, there was the extreme end that, that eventually got to. How else yeah. are these people going to be called to account? You know, people like, uh, you know, Kelly Brook. <laughs> <laughs> How else are, are, is she going to be, is she going to be made to answer for her actions, you know? Yeah, that's um, true. Where, and, and I think maybe in Italy, uh, Italy also had that city newspaper culture, or maybe regional newspapers more than national ones. What's the link to football well, I, Because, you know, you can, you don't, I think that in, in football, you know, there's, particularly in tabloid culture in English newspapers, I mean, I'm just saying, I, I think I see a similarity here, is that they're looking for stories like f- which footballers are having affairs, you know, that's kind of it, that will sell you some copies. Oh, love rat X romps with, you know, that's the kind of a story. Whereas in a country like Italy, where you're talking about a more sedate press culture in general, I mean, I say I say that, I mean, when you look at the history of Italy, maybe that's not really true, but let's say Christian democratic era, Italy, you're looking at a more, maybe, you know, you can have a, a kind of a column about tactics, you know, people want to talk about the game. No one's necessarily interested in who's sleeping with who, and maybe people would get a little bit concerned if that kind of stuff started going in the newspapers. Nobody wants that. You know, that's a sort of a situation which which could cause problems for everybody. So uh, let's talk about tactics instead. Whereas in, in Britain, it was never really concerned. It was more, you know, it was like, well, this is this is the least interesting thing about the game, the game itself. You know, why not talk about it? I don't know. And I've, to be honest, I've, I've maybe I've talked myself into a cul-de-sac here. No, so I don't know. Well, uh, Jonathan Wilson is going to uh, talk yeah. us through all of that a little bit later on. So we'll look forward to that. It's time now for your, Kennedy, your report on sport. <laughs> Well, where do we start? Where do we start? Uh, Merseyside Derby? Yeah, Merseyside Derby is the, is the first uh, Premier League game this weekend. And one of the uh, one of the bigger ones is a North London Derby as well. There's a, a, a tricky enough game for Manchester United at home to West Ham, who, of course, had a very good result, um, a very good result uh, last weekend and seemed to be in, in good form. Um, but as for the... Uh, Merseyside game. This is an interesting one because both of these managers, the two most positive men in the Premier League, they are they are you know always positive, but uh, they're positive men in an increasingly negative world uh, as a result of the starts of the teams have made to the season. Everton scoring plenty of goals, third highest scores in the league, but letting in goals a lot of them, thirteen goals let in more than anyone else. Uh, Liverpool have lost three matches, which is more than anyone except QPR, who have also lost three. So both of these managers going into this game at Anfield, they lose this game. Things are getting really negative. Yeah. Um, and in contrast maybe to uh, Brendan Rodgers, who in recent days has started to, I don't want to say make excuses, but under the pressure of losing matches, has started to come up with reasons why maybe the team isn't playing that well, which have ranged from the draining effects physically and mentally of, of Champions League football to the weight of the shirt. Something Trapattoni was always talking about, this shirt, this shirt is heavy, this shirt is heavy. Um, oh, not the physical weight, but... Not the, the, no, uh, it only weighs a few grams, but yeah. in terms of the metaphorical weight, these players have the world on their shoulders. I mean, often thought that 533 was a- million supporters, the dreams of... Uh, according to Brendan Rodgers, 533 million supporters, even if a dream is almost weightless, when you add, when you multiply it by that many supporters, it's like that movie, what is it, 22 ounces or whatever. Mm-hmm. What was that movie? Do you remember that? 21 ounces. 21 ounces, yeah. So it was apparently the, the weight of the soul or something like that. Now, I mean, if you multiply 21 ounces, say if a dream is only... Two ounces. Most dreams are roughly two ounces, yeah. Because it, it's got it's it's reflective of electrical activity in the brain. There's a, there's a there's a physical component of it. It's you know whatever the the various neurotransmitters and neurons and so on which are allowing this thing to take place in the brain. Whatever they weigh, it's got a weight, right? Let's call it two ounces multiplied by five hundred and thirty-three million. That's over a billion ounces, which is which is a lot. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about a huge weight often can be too much for a player, especially one who's had a mentally draining Champions League match against Ludogorets. Mm. Uh, Raheem Sterling, I was interested to see playing. I mean, remember Rodgers had had um, criticised Roy Hodgson for overplaying Daniel Sturridge 
you need to recover the players and so on. You might need to recalibrate your uh, scales here, by the way, Ken, because the movie is actually called 21 Grams. 21 Grams? Yeah, when well, somebody dies, I mean, they immediately lose 21 Grams. That's much less. That's much less. But, you know, even if even if it did... I mean, two ounces is about, about 50 grams. Mm-hmm. So let's say it's 21 grams. A billion times 21 grams is, is actually a really easy sum to work out if you can count to zeros, which I... I don't have the brain power to do it this time. I do feel yeah. that the, it's funny you brought up the weight of the jersey again because the reason I might, might have taken that too literally initially was that I do feel a lot of Irish rugby's lack of success in the 1990s was down, literally down to the physical weight of the jerseys. If you see Brian O'Driscoll scoring those three tries against France, and Brian O'Driscoll was a very small, slight player at the time. Yeah. Hadn't bulked up, hadn't done any of that, was a little whippet. He was wearing a jersey that looked like it weighed about a stone and he might have only been about 12 stone himself. Yeah. So when you're, if the jersey is one thirteenth of your body weight, yeah, it's going to slow you down. I mean, it's a remarkable he even managed to score those. And tries. it was the and it, the, the, the aerodynamics, yeah. hopeless. I mean, it was like a sail and a lot of material for French defenders to catch onto and drag you back with and put you on your arms. I don't think there was much given the material either. It was no. it was sort of if, once it, once they got a good tug of that, that would have an, that would have massive stopping power. Mm. You know, uh, Michael Owen, I think, was the same. Football uh, strips were very big and baggy at that time as well, and, and you get a really skinny little kid like. Oh, and just totally ridiculous. Here's this bag of clothes running around. But I mean, I think it's about, it's, it's roughly 20 million kilograms okay. of expectation. That's a lot. Which is huge. And, uh, you know. What's uh, Raheem Sterling going to do about it? You mentioned Sterling there. Well, Sterling, Sterling, you know, obviously played 120 minutes against uh, Middlesbrough. I'm sure Brendan Rodgers wasn't expecting that to happen. Um, and then took part in this penalty shootout which went on all night I mean <laughs> literally half an hour's worth of penalties uh, he gave away effectively the penalty Colin Tura actually gave away the penalty but Sterling played him into trouble in the last minute of extra time so that was the equaliser then he missed his own penalty um, I'm sure it's all water for ducks back to young Raheem yep. uh, but a big game again on, on Saturday morning and, and I'm sure Raheem Sterling has to start that game we can't see Brendan Rodgers leaving him out of that so let's say Hopefully he doesn't pick up a muscle injury there, or else um, maybe Brendan Rodgers might have to apologise to old Roy Hodgson. Um, but uh, anyway, Martinez. Well, anyway, the point there was was Rodgers is, is kind of beginning to say, well, you know, there's this, there's that, the, the weight of the jersey, the draining Champions League thing. The new players always take a while to. When you get used to playing for Liverpool, your thinking becomes clearer. Whereas Martinez insists that everything is still going really well. Uh, the last time we beat Liverpool at Anfield was on September 27th, so let's hope it's the same, says Martinez. He, of course, it'll be September 27th. So oh, no. You don't know. That's tenuous. Could be. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it's the 27th day of the ninth month. Nine into 27 is three. That's three points for everyone. <laughs> so, you know. You've got to be a bit of a maths ways to follow this report on sport, Ken. I've got to be honest. It's like counting. You've lost a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it's... Look, but Clark Carlisle is the only person still listening to this. <laughs> Uh, it, it affects us in a positive way, uh, says Martinez. Obviously, he's not going to say this is this is really getting to us. The fact that we can't beat um, Liverpool at Anfield um, stats are there to be broken. It's a difficult place to go, but there are other places too that we have gone and changed the stats and changed the history. Um, he doesn't mention that the defense has been quite poor. Uh, we need to fine tune. You sometimes have areas where you're so good that you might take it for granted. So that might have been Everton's issue. Uh, it's clearly an area that we need to resolve. It is affecting score lines. <laughs> Martinez, it certainly is. All the goals that they're letting in is affecting their score lines in, the not, in not the most positive way. Not as positive as the goals they've scored in that sense. We don't want to accept the amount of goals you've conceded. We don't want to be a team that concedes cheaply. Um, we want to impose ourselves uh, on the game. So, yeah, I mean, it should be a good game. The, the games uh, last season, the game at Goodison last season wasn't, Stone Cold Classic, mm. but not in a not in the sort of sense of two absolutely magnificent teams. Uh, it was two fairly rickety teams going at it hell for leather, and it was it finished a three all draw, but um, uh, a pretty amazing game. The other one was it was a four nil to Liverpool, which was a, a strange game. They, they were three nil up at half time, and um, was it three nil or four nil? Mm. You've got that. It had that great. Uh, photograph of uh, Daniel Sturridge. Daniel Sturridge lobbed the goalkeeper and then yeah. himself and Luis Suarez stood, arms around each other 
uh, and stood in front of the Everton fans in the, the away section. Uh, and it's quite interesting to look, to look at that photograph, the two faces. Sturridge has got this sort of, hmm, yeah, I don't know what you'd say. His lips are slightly pursed, is that what you'd say? He's kind of looking at the fans thinking, yeah, you know, that was a good goal. How'd you like that? Suarez is actually beaming. He's actually beaming as though he's, you know, he's taking his kids out with their friends or something or he's bringing a birthday cake out for his daughter. That's how happy this makes him to go and rub this in the faces of the urban fans. He actually thrives on that hateful energy and it made him genuinely, it seemed to genuinely gladden his soul. Uh, it was interesting to see the difference between the two of them and how they, you know, how they feel about opposing fans. Rather like Tom Hicks. Everton's not going to like that. <laughs> Everton's not going to like that. Suarez looked even happier than Hicks, although Hicks did look pretty. He looked very happy. Take, I do recall him. He was watching a sort of a home cinema, if I remember this in Sky Sports News report correctly. Yeah. And he, he may have even had a Liverpool mug. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, had, he had a Liverpool scarf. And he's he? drinking and he just puts the mug down, looks at the camera. Everton's not going to like that. It yeah. was nothing to do with Everton. Liverpool no. just beating somebody else. They beat Blackburn, yeah. It was, it was <laughs> Blackburn. <and> Everton. <laughs> um, anyway, big uh, Sam Allardyce. Uh, fresh from uh, the destruction of, of Brendan Rodgers' Liverpool, uh, now goes to Old Trafford. Um, and he's just had a few words of advice. He, remember, he had a few words of advice to um, Brendan Rodgers about what he should do to, in terms of travelling for European matches and so on. He's now got some advice for the Manchester United board in terms of how they should back their managers. Right. And remember last week he was talking about the, t- the top man, the master, Alex Ferguson, who he evidently talks to quite regularly. Um I'm sure he's talked to him about this, but he's also been talking to David Moyes, it turns out. There was a complacency by United, uh, says Sam, in not going out and delivering the signings David felt he needed. Now there's a panic on. Um, He'll obviously look at what might have been done better, but he should have done better. But he should have got the players he wanted, and he tells me he didn't get any of them. This was um, Moyes obviously wanting Fabregas. Fabregas, who, based on what he's been doing for Chelsea, I think we can say it would have been a good signing. Um, And and Tony, Tony Kroos. Um, who you know didn't really push the boat out for, but now they've spent 150 million under, under Van Hal. He's also saying that um, uh, he's given Andy Carroll a model <coughs> uh, to base the next few years of his career on. Andy Carroll, frequently injury hit striker, yeah. Ryan Giggs. Uh, I I knew Giggsy when he started all the yoga. He's a bit of a name dropper, isn't he? I mean. He, he he's always talking about. I was talking to Fergie. I was talking to to Moisey. I knew Giggsy when he started all the. You knew Giggsy. I mean, we all knew Giggsy. How do you mean? Like, were they friends off the field or, or something like this? I don't know. I don't know. When he started all the yoga and the weights and found a solution to his persistent hamstring problems, Giggsy continued playing until he was forty. And he has to find answers too. I don't know if Andy Carroll and Ryan Giggs are really that um, that comparable. I mean, what's the famous description of? of uh, Ryan Giggs, which Alex Ferguson used to repeat at every available opportunity. The first time he saw him, he was like what? Oh, twist. Oh, I'm thinking of the twisting the blood of the defenders. No, the crisp packet floating in the air or something like that. It was uh, like a a dog, or it might have been a particular type of dog, a spaniel or some kind of a dog, chasing a piece of silver paper. Chasing a piece of silver paper. I like the way I turn that into crisps. Yeah, well, some kind of litter anyway. Some kind of fast-moving, elusive litter. And Giggs was gliding along the ground, just feet barely seeming to touch the, the grass. I don't know if anyone has ever said this about Andy Carroll, if quite the same thing has ever struck somebody. I mean, maybe, you know, a cow eating from a pile of rubbish. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's something which I've seen um, in India. Uh, I don't know if... Yeah, it happens quite a lot there. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of rubbish and there's a lot of animals, right. big animals, so they kind of... <laughs> Obviously, they're going to eat it, and uh, it's something which leaves an impression on you. I mean, Andy Carroll chasing a piece of silver paper, I don't know. Can you imagine Andy Carroll in that scene where he has to chase the chicken, you know, in Rocky Three? <laughs> he would injure his back yeah. doing that. I mean, I think I just think, I mean, uh, Rocky was a Rocky was a blocky enough character himself. Rocky Balboa? Yeah. Well, he was short enough. It wasn't like Andy, it wasn't a big, um, I mean, how much longer is Andy Carroll's spine than Rocky Balboa's? I'd say a couple of feet. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's 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 got to be at least seven or eight inches taller, and I think a lot of that is in the back. I'd say their legs are about the same length, and then the back. So, just when you consider a, a, a person as big as Andy Carroll, 
running around in the field with all the twists and turns that he has to do, the forces that are on that are um, that his his joints have to deal with are just so much bigger. You know, I mean, when when he has to, his his knees, his hips, uh, when he when he's just moving that frame around, it's that much more difficult. I mean, all the, the sinews and muscles are made of the same basic materials as someone like Ryan Giggs. It's just that they have a lot more work to do. And I think, you know, with Carroll, it's it's difficult. You know, I mean, he's got so many injuries at this stage. I find it hard to imagine him really ever yeah. getting. Well, look, I mean, I don't know, like doom this guy's career. Maybe he maybe he will, but it's. It's a very hard situation. Another model that he could follow could be that of Cristiano Ronaldo, who stays relatively injury-free and could be on the way back to Manchester United again if the fans get their way. Well, this is what the Man United fans, or a certain small and increasingly annoying subset of them, are uh, doing these days, is hiring out planes to trail messages across the sky. Uh, And they're going to do this, apparently, when Villarreal play Real Madrid on Saturday. So this game is is a day game which means he can fly a plane across the sky and people will see it. And the message that's going to be bringing is, Ronaldo, come home. Come home to Manchester. Well, just come home. Ronaldo, come home. Um, This uh, fan group uh, say, members from all over the world have donated their own money and resources to fund a mind game message flown by plane during the upcoming Villarreal-Real Madrid football match in a bid to demonstrate to Cristiano Ronaldo how much the United faithful, which is capitalised, still love and support him. With the current uncertainty regarding Ronaldo's future, United Real, that's the name of the group, deem it essential that the player can not only feel, but also see how much the fans still love him and how proud they are of his achievements since he left Manchester United. So, yeah. Uh, I don't I, know. I wonder when I get to the point that the TV people give these flyovers the same treatment that they give streakers. We're not going to give them even the publicity of their of their Moyes out banner and of their Ronaldo come home banner. Yeah, I don't know. Um, or any sort of any sort of on field protesters are rarely shown. But they always get this often a glimpse. It doesn't of them. even matter. You don't even need to show it on TV now because it'll be on like Twitter. You yeah, know, people will true. take photographs of it and take videos of it, and, and uh, it's it's kind of I suppose it's going to get out. You know, quick maybe. one on Wenger. Uh, yeah, poor old, uh, well, Arsene Wenger, I don't mean to say poor old Arsene Wenger. Um, poor old Abu Dhabi. Uh, looks like he might be playing as a holding midfielder against Tottenham. This is Abu Dhabi. He's obviously, uh, <laughs> he gave an interview the other day where he's like, every season we say, I am like a new signing, uh, because he's always recovering from some kind of uh, injury. In fact, uh, an interesting in- infographic going around over the last couple of days, 40 injuries, uh, 2008 years for Abu Dhabi. Uh, over a quarter of them calf strains. Then it's a pie chart. Check that out, Owen. Look at that. I know you, I'm showing this to Owen and no one else can see it. I'm going to try and describe it. Calf strain, foot injury. This is in descending order of frequency. Thigh strain is about a sixth. Hamstring strain, illness, knee injury, ankle sprain, abdominal strain. How do you even do that? Cruciate ligament, back injury, shin injury, concussion, groin strain, pelvic injury, medial ligament, and finally, unspecified muscular injury. 40 injuries in eight years. It's a lot. The calf, they're just looking at your pie chart. The calf seems to take up about 25% of it. Yeah, he's, he's got a problem there. I mean, I think he... Didn't he break his ankle very badly? Um, Diaby, it was... Now I always get this mixed up. He broke someone's ankle. I think it was Ivan Campo. And then someone broke his ankle. I'm not saying it was in retaliation, but it was around the same time. Since then, he's always had this recurring uh, issue. But it is a big match uh, also for... For Wenger and for uh, Pochettino. Pochettino, who hasn't been having that good a start. Um, a little bit, uh, you know, again. And it's it's interesting that so far, so many of the teams are underperforming, really. The bigger teams. I mean, Manchester United, obviously, Liverpool, we've been speaking about. Arsenal kind of chugging away, but not in any, not in a particularly impressive way. Uh, and Manchester City, obviously, made a mess of the match against Stoke and are already, what, five behind Chelsea. So... Chelsea are the only ones really who have who have hit the ground running, and um, this weekend with, with Everton, uh, one or two rather out of Liverpool, Everton, Arsenal, and Tottenham are going to be um, actually in a full blown crisis mode. That's the end. Uh, a pie chart seems a reasonable way to end this yeah. <laughs> version of Ken Early's report on sport. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? 
How are you, lads? Richie. How are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen him. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. We're joined by Jonathan Wilson to talk, Jonathan, about the way in which football is analysed on a tactical level, how much time and space is given to that side of the game. Ken teed it up a little bit earlier on. It's something you've been writing about this week. Is it possible at this stage that maybe formations and tactics are overanalyzed? I'm not sure whether it's overanalysis. I think when you're writing about tactics, you've got to be aware that that's not the only thing. And there, you know, there are certain games where a tactical issue does decide the game, but there are certain games when it's something completely different. I think there's a danger of trying to to twist events in, in, into your own narrative. So I, I think your know, tactics are one of a number of, of interrelated strands that condition how a game turns out. And, and those other strands would be the talent of the players, the fitness of the players, the motivation of the players, luck. I mean, probably a whole load of other things. And I think the fascinating thing actually is is how intertwined they are. That uh, I think a, you know, a coach, for instance, should, should actually look at this team and think, well, okay, they, they had a big game on Saturday, it's Tuesday night now, they're, they're knackered. We, you know, we probably have to play slightly differently. We have to not be as aggressive. And that, he'd set his team up in that way. And so, therefore, the, the, the tactics are, are, are contingent upon the, the, um, the physical state of the players. So I think you know, everything sort of goes together. And, and you know, equally, a player who doesn't enjoy his tactical role or a player who, who finds himself in a game in which the, the shape of the game makes it very difficult for him, perhaps his motivation goes in that game. And I think certainly you see that a lot in, uh, in England internationals. So people talk about, oh, they haven't shown passion, they haven't shown pride. Well, actually, probably the case is, is further back down the line that something's gone wrong in the tactical preparation and therefore, those players, no matter how hard they try, they're, they're not able to exercise influence over the game, and then they become frustrated. So I think everything meshes together, and you have to be aware of that. It strikes me that a much higher proportion, well, maybe it's just that there's more football writing available worldwide, full stop anyway, but it, it seems like there is a lot uh, of tactical stuff, even around Louis van Gaal uh, arriving at Manchester United. So much was written, and still is being written and talked about, the formation, uh, how he's going to set out his 11 players. Is that actually the case, do you think, that, that this type of tactical analysis is a lot more rigorous now in, in football journalism in the last few years? And if it is, how did that come to be? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think the, the issue of Van Gaal is that his tactics are fascinating and, and therefore you talk about them. You know, he, has, you know, certainly in European terms, has been probably the, the main driver of, of, of the tactical development of the game in the last quarter century. So it's, it's natural that we... We, we talk about his tactics. But I think it's also important, just just something you, you, you mentioned there, it's, when you talk about tactics, it's not just about the formation. The formation is one side of it, but the philosophy, which is, of course, what Van Gaal always goes on about, that, you know, that's the other side of it, and the two sort of come together. So, f- for instance, Brendan Rodgers has a very clear philosophy, but he will change formation from game to game. So you know, this, the style and the, the, the system go together to, to make the tactical um, outlook of the side, which I think is something that... that there's a tendency for, for some people to get, get bogged down in, in the formation, which is only one part of it. But I mean, to, to go back to the other, the other part of your question as to why it's come about, um, I, I think there's a, there's a whole number of reasons. Um, I think probably there was a realisation 10 years ago or so that it was an element of the game that certainly in Britain that we didn't cover particularly well. Um, and and you know, when you looked at... Italian newspapers particularly, you saw hugely in-depth tactical analyses and we sort of realised that we weren't doing that. And perhaps the pendulum now has swung too far, that there was a, a reaction against that, where people realised, well, this is a thing we aren't doing, let's do it. And perhaps we now overanalyse that. I think it's also it's something that um, in a world in which journalism is having to find a new role because of the, the internet and the possibilities that gives you, it's something that... Um, but you, you, know, you can't sort of cut and paste a tactical analysis. You can cut and paste, paste a press conference. It's a, it's something where there, there needs to be a level of thought, a level of expertise, which perhaps only professionals um, can can give you. 
but I also think that you know that just the culture of the game has changed, uh, and that's again it's to do with a huge number of factors. I, I think. The, the way that the English game changed in the 90s, the, the sort of gentrification of the game, um, I think that probably opened up people to a, to a new way of looking at things, that there was suddenly an awareness that there, there was a, a constituency there who were interested in, in how the game worked, who were inter- interested in a more intellectual side of the game. Now, I actually suspect that had always been there, but it hadn't really been recognised, and it, it sort of came out in the 90s. And of course, the way that media has developed, the, the proliferation of satellite channels, means that coverage of, of everything, not just football, everything becomes more specialised. Rather than having four or five channels covering everything and having to be quite generalist, you now have, you know, to take Sky as the example, you now have their six channels, one devoted to news, one devoted to European football, and, and well, it appears one devoted to cricket, one devoted to golf. And so those channels necessarily... But, you know, they, they go further in depth because they know their audience cares about that sport at, at a particular level, and that's why you get you know, Gary Neville and Jamie Carrick on a Monday night doing an hour-long program on tactics, which would have been absolutely unthinkable in the eighties. And then the internet as well; it allows sort of um, small groups of people or individuals to create a community, and quite a small number of people can actually create something quite worthwhile, whereas before you had that connectedness of the internet, it was much harder for them to exchange ideas. Yeah, I, I also think the the visual aspect of it is very important in this particular type of uh, talking about the game, you know? It's a lot, I mean, I've seen some, you know, um, what's the guy's name, Murray, the rugby guy? Murray, Murray Kinsler. Murray Kinsler. Yeah, I don't know if you know this guy, Jonathan, he's, a, he's actually a rugby journalist, but I've seen him do like a few uh, really good, kind of analysis pieces on rugby matches where, you know, he would have a series of clips, you know, kind of running down through the length of the piece, kind of illustrating each point, which sort of is able to bring it to life a lot more. I mean, for instance, we maybe don't tend to talk that much about tactics on this program, purely because it's a difficult thing to talk about verbally without a kind of a visual element. And maybe it's become a lot easier for people to do that since, you know, things like YouTube and the internet existed. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Or, I mean, you look at Sky's cricket coverage, for instance, they've been doing these masterclasses recently, which are fascinating, where you had, for instance, Wazi Makram explaining the art of swing bowling. And he, so he was, he was in a net uh, with Nasser Hussain at the other end, and he was bowling balls to Nasser Hussain, explaining what he was doing. Nasser Hussain was trying to combat it, explaining the difficulty. And then they had a huge TV screen where they could actually show a clip of this happening in a game. They could overlay graphics over the top of that. So the technological advances have, you know, have made it much, much easier to, to, to go into detail and, and to make it accessible to people. Yeah. Um, one question, one issue, though, maybe which some people have, and I'm sure people within the game itself have this problem, um, is who are these people to tell me what is and isn't a significant tactical thing to happen in a game. You know, I mean, if, if, if people haven't played professionally themselves, I mean, it's, it's a new version of an old argument, I suppose. I mean, I, one of the most interesting things I, I can remember seeing uh, in terms of a tactical discussion was a YouTube clip of Johan Cruyff talking to a bunch of guys. He's got like a blackboard and he's explaining, uh, he's explaining some particular variant of a diamond system that he used to play at Barcelona. And he kind of goes through this, you know, and he's like, oh, you know, and he's drawn X's and arrows and stuff. And then, he's, then he says, but the, the whole point of what he's illustrating, it, it only becomes clear at the end. He kind of tells us, tells us the story quite well. And essentially, you know, he's got this guy making a run here, but it's not really for any tactical reason in the sense of, you know, he thinks there's going to be space there. What, he, what he's saying is, if this guy is doing this, the striker has to cover him. If he has to, he has to cover the run. If he does, has to do that 10 times, the striker's going to be exhausted. Then the striker's going to stop doing it, and that's when the bench and his teammates all get angry with him and they all start fighting among themselves. So the idea is, it's sort of something which I think would only occur to someone who had played a lot of games. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, rather than this being a sort of, uh, okay, my players are here, you know, two-dimensional concept of space and so on, it's actually an in-practice thing that happens in the game that, a sort of uh, that really you might have had to play hundreds of games to realize this is going to be the effect of what I'm trying to do here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- that's precisely what I was saying before about uh, the strands intermesh. So that's that's the tactical side of things. It's also the, the fitness side of things and the motivation side of things that the strike has to be fit enough to cover and also he has to be motivated to keep doing it. So, I, I mean, obviously, somebody like Johan Cruyff will know that far better than somebody like me sitting on the outside. 
Um, and it's it's actually one of my one of my great frustrations. And I think it is beginning to change. But one of my great frustrations with former players, former coaches uh, acting as pundits that they clearly have a depth of knowledge, a depth of experience that I can never have. And yet I feel very, very rarely do they go into that. Very rarely do, do you hear that. And if, if they do tell you about that, if they are able to articulate it, then, then of course that is going to be better than anything I can do in those terms. What I can do uh, is that you know I know the history of the game. I've, I've read huge numbers of books. I've watched huge numbers of videos. I've studied that. So... Yeah, historically, I mean, I, I remember talking to uh, to Ian Wright about this actually, uh, and yeah, Ian Wright was saying, well, yeah, he knows what it was like playing for Crystal Palace. He knows what it was like playing for Arsenal. He knows what it was like playing for England, but he hasn't watched the Slovenia national team. I can't remember if Slovenia. We're actually having a discussion about. It. Let's say Slovenia. Mm. Whereas you know, I have watched the Slovenia national team. I have spoken to their journalists. I have spoken to their players. I have spoken to their coach, and therefore I have a, some knowledge on Slovenia that I can bring to the discussion. So. Although I, I don't have a first-hand experience, I, I do still have a you know, something unique that, that, that I can bring to that discussion. And that, I think, is what journalists have to do. So if the question is, which I think, I think the question at the start was, if, if the question is, uh, why should I listen to this guy? Well, you listen to him because over time he proves he knows what he's talking about. Now, that can come through experience, and that is probably the best way to learn it. But it can just come from watching an awful lot of football. And uh, you, know, you must know from talking to, to former players that even a lot of them in punditry, maybe fewer now than, than was the case, actually don't watch that much football. They're not that interested in, in, in football beyond their, their, their own their own domain. That They wouldn't watch European leagues. They wouldn't watch Copa Libertadores. They wouldn't watch Copa America. wouldn't watch Copa Nations. And and so that, that, that knowledge of journalists gained by by watching that is is what they have that the players don't. And ideally, the two go together, the first-hand experience and the, the learned experience. Do you find you have to actually be at a game live, Jonathan, to fully understand the tactical nuances going on? Because one, uh, one thing I find about tactical analysis of games is that when I'm watching it or when I'm listening to it or reading it, I'm thinking, yeah, that all, that all makes sense. But when the game is then going on live on TV... Maybe I'm just a little bit slow on the uptake. On you can't see all those. It, it, it's hard to, for a start, it's hard to even understand the formation, let alone some of the tactical stuff. That So you, you're, you, it's always nice to take something into a game and look out for something particularly. You know, Frank Lampard is playing, it's as obvious as hell, he's playing against his old club Chelsea. If he scores a goal, that's really interesting. But some of the, the tactical nuances m- might be harder to spot on TV. I don't know if you, you even agree with that or if you feel you do actually have no, to be No, I completely there. agree with that. I mean, I, I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's, um, I think it's much harder to do it off TV. Uh, and even when you're working at, at stadiums, I think, where the press box is makes a huge difference. So the, the Tottenham press box, for instance, is incredibly low. You're right behind. The, you used to be right behind the dugout. They've now moved you to the other side of the tunnel, but it's the same sort of trajectory onto the pitch. And and you're so low down. If you're in one of the front two or three rows, the camber of the pitch is such you can't even see the ball when it's at the far touchline. So you, you can't. It's very very hard for journalists to make tactical calls. I actually them. I love that though, That's, just because I mean I remember I've been on that that Spurs press box a few times. And what it does better than anywhere else is convey just how amazing somebody like Luka Modric is. That a guy who has an even lower angle of view. I mean, the guy's his head is barely above the blades of grass, and he's somehow able to see the whole game as though he was playing it, you know, on a on a computer. Um, you know, he it it sort of brings home just how extraordinary sometimes players like this are that they're able to see the shape of the game, which is just chaos from from the actual perspective that they're looking at it from. Yeah, absolutely. And, and something that I actually find slightly confusing, and you know, I, I don't really understand how a manager standing on the touchline can possibly see that. And I think it's interesting that um, you know, Nigel Pearson, the Leicester manager, that he's now, you know, he chooses to sit in the stand because he thinks he gets a better, better advantage over the game. Bob Paisley used to do that. He used to sit in the stand for the first half and he'd go down in the second half. So you know, he got an idea of the shape of the game before half-time and then when you need to make substitutions, when he felt he needed to, to shout at people, he'd go down to the touchline for, for the second half. So I, I, I find it mystifying that, or you know, mystifying is maybe the wrong word, but I find it incredibly impressive that, yeah, players in, in, involved in the game, but also managers standing there who have to be making these decisions, trying to, to monitor 22 players all the time, that they're somehow able to do it from such a low position. Yeah, I mean, and it's a, it's a thing actually that started happening in, in hockey in Germany, that it's now become a common thing for there to be sort of like a tower behind one of the goals. And obviously you don't have anything like the same number of fans at a hockey match as you have at a, at a football match, so it's, it's easier to do. And you'd have an assistant coach 
in in this sort of tower, sort of I don't know, ten, twelve feet up behind one of the goals. So he's you know he's looking at it from ninety degrees differently to to the main coach, and he's also looking from slightly above. And then he's in contact with the main coach, telling telling him what he what he can see. So I think that idea that the the low vantage point is not necessarily the best one is you know is one that's certainly there in in others and in rugby as well of course yeah. the, the coach that's... tends to sit in the stand with his laptop and and, and able to take a, a view from higher well i wonder what they there's so many computers up there the rugby coach is just sitting this bank of computers i'm not quite sure what uh, <laughs> what they're all for but um just the, the last thing i wanted to ask was you obviously have been one of the kind of main exponents of this particular type of, I mean, i'm not saying this is this is what you're doing but you did write a book which kind of became the standard in this field um, I've written for a bit of it in time. You then get people accusing you of having ruined football. People seem to get really angry about this. Yeah, well, they do. Which I, I quite like the idea that I ruined football. It makes me feel very powerful. But um, I, I, yeah, I, I find that bizarre. I mean, it seems to me that there's many different ways of, of enjoying football. You don't have to. Every doesn't have to enjoy it in the same way. And you know, if you know, I, I suppose I have three ways of enjoying football. I have the the, the work mode where yeah I'm I'm analysing it. Um, I have the mode where I go and have a couple of pints with my mate and go and watch Sunderland and desperately want Sunderland to win. I don't actually care what the game's like as long as Sunderland win. And then I have the you know the occasional game when um, yeah I'm just watching it for fun and I just want to be entertained. And the last thing I want to see is sort of a uh, a tactically enthralling goalless draw. So I. I can understand that you, you prioritise one of those three modes. What, what I don't understand is you'd be so hostile to one of the other three. I mean, people who don't like tactical journalism, fine, don't read it. Football still happens, you can still enjoy it. Um, I'm, it the, the hostility I find pretty strange, to be honest. Well, that book that Ken mentioned, if, if people haven't read it, it's called Inverting the Pyramid, the History of Soccer Tactics. So a, a late plug for that one. Jonathan Wilson, good to talk to you as always. Cheers, thank you. The manager on the touchline element of that would seem to be a really obvious, a really obvious way to go about your business because you have got, I, I don't know what it is, maybe they, managers like to feel that they're part of the game. Mm. You do get a lot of managers who, the, the tracksuit types who actually do a lot of the coaching, although there's probably less of that uh, nowadays. But I mean, whether you were a great player or maybe even more pertinently, if you were never a great player, you probably want to feel like I'm part of this as you would if you were a physio or, or working at the... You want to be at, at the game as opposed to be sitting up in the stand there taking yeah. notes. I mean, the thing, the point about them is most of them are... I mean, almost all managers are former football players. So this is the angle from which they're used to seeing the game, really. They're used to kind of that participatory mm. angle, like, you know, pitch level, player level. Um, and I'm sure a lot of them are very good at reading the game from that type of uh, position. I mean, there's also the fact that you can communicate directly with the players. I mean, in theory. In theory. Sometimes they'll hear you. Sometimes they'll hear you and pretend to ignore you. Sometimes they really won't hear you. But you can feel as though you're communicating with them. So it might be easier for the manager to take on a kind of dealing with his own nervous energy level. And then there's the fact that maybe when you are up close, you do, you get a, maybe you get a better sense of the game in some other ways. Rather than just the distribution of the players in space relative to each other or how that's looking maybe you kind of get more of a sense of the look in their eye mm. you know oh I don't like the look at this fullback you know I've, I'm pretty sure I just saw him crying you know he just walked past me and I think I saw tears in his eyes you know let's try going down that's, I, don't, I, I don't know it's funny you mentioned the uh, lack of the communication difficulties between the manager and players when the players are on the field I was at the Sport Against Racism Soccer Fest a couple of weeks ago Ken you were the manager when I was the manager I usually play in this tell us who was on your team out. Uh, it was a pretty good side Ken we had yeah. a couple of League of Ireland stalwarts uh, we had Stuart Byrne there uh, yeah. Alan Cole yeah, Alan Cole, yeah. Jason Sherlock, also League of Ireland experience so I mean some good footballers oh some very good well, footballers who else did you have? Yeah, we had uh Trying to think of the rest of the team now. I don't know. Oh, you Either only way. had eyes for the the top lads. Well, no, we two of the rugby international uh, Irish women's rugby internationals. Okay, uh, that, was, that was that was they were strong footballers too. Yeah. Um, and Noel King was the man I wanted to bring up because right the issue was we had hang on you were the manager and Noel King you were was bossing him around. Oh well, uh, unsuccessfully as it turned out. The problem was it was a seven aside game. We had about eighteen panel members. Yeah. Uh, and I was told, well, you're you're the manager because you're a bit injured and can't play so uh, thanks for coming along now manage this team I was like well I haven't really got much management experience but I suppose I just have to throw myself into it Yeah. 
quite difficult trying to rotate players when there are that many and the game's only about 25 minutes long and every, almost everybody wants to play. Yeah. Um, you don't want to kill the game with substitutions. No, I don't want to kill the game with substitutions, but as soon as I sent Noel King on, Ken, yeah. I mean, I held him in reserve, yeah. sent him on after a few minutes. Was he, was he, uh, was oh, he, he in, in your ear, was he boss, boss? Yeah, you know? there was a bit of that. There was a little bit of that. Got him on there and as soon as I did, somebody said, you're never getting him off. And I went, well, no, he has to come on. He has to. He has to. I mean, what, my authority. Yeah, exactly. He'll respect yeah. it. So uh, a few minutes later, I was, uh, no, no. 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 Did you, you called him no. But I didn't call him Kinger. I mean, Why didn't you just call him by his number? I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if there were numbers. Oh, right, okay. Think about it. So, uh, yeah, well, Noel um, chose to, or maybe, he, maybe he just couldn't hear me. Yeah. Uh, I feel he maybe chose not to hear me. And I noticed then... Did you have a Dan, 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 There's a little Dan. bit of that about it. Finally, at halftime, I managed to take him off. He couldn't ignore me. I was standing directly in front of him. So, yeah. came off. Then when I put him back on in the second <laughs> half, uh, he went as far over to the far wing as he possibly could. Did a lot of his operator from that side. Uh, still, a, still a handy footballer, Noel King, so it was okay to have him on there. But uh, yeah. So, I, your, your team triumphed. Oh, we triumphed. We were playing against a love-hate team. Yeah. Um, love-hate went ahead through Fran. I'm going to give them their love-hate names. Yeah. Um, Cat Killer was, was their... String puller in midfield. <laughs> right. Aidan Gillen was a somewhat awkward but very tenacious attacking player. Whacked one off the crossbar early on. But what, uh, was that from the action shot that I saw? Yeah, I see. It was, it was Aidan, Aidan Gillen uh, really winding up to uh, left footed body. I thought quite athletically strike a, a ball off the ground with uh, Aidan O'Riordan, the Labour politician. Yeah. Uh, stumbling around in front, <laughs> possibly <laughs> trying to get a block on it. Aidan was one of the players who seemed reasonably happy to come off after a few minutes. <laughs> I must say. But uh, yeah, we Alan Cawley got us back in the game again after France. Well, he's, I mean, Alan Cawley's a class footballer. A class footballer in jail. Yeah. Banged in the winner late on. Yeah, I mean, so look, I, I just don't know. I, I'm surprised it was that close. Yeah. So, well, again, the, the difficulty that we had in the, the 18 players being on the panel. I, I, if I was ruthless about it, Ken, I might have left most of those names I've talked about on there. Yeah. But there had to be a bit of given. A few journalists had to come on. Oh, right. <laughs> a few okay, other yeah, people yeah, had to come on and play their feed the, well. You've got to feed yeah. the press, you know. Anyway, I've gone totally off on a tangent here. We are joined by Tony Barrett, who's been at Roberto Martinez's pre-Merseyside Derby press conference today. Tony, the detail of which you're probably going to keep for your paper. But just I'm wondering, with one win from five so far this season, how is... Martinez's demeanour holding up? His demeanour is, is what you'd expect of Martinez. It doesn't matter whether Everton win, lose or draw. He's always positive. Uh, I think the problem is that in the eyes of the Everton fans, that, that begins to grate a little bit when things aren't going well. He was very, very positive after Everton lost to Swansea in midweek in the, in the Capital One Cup. And, and that hasn't gone down well at all. Uh, the man of Everton's defeat, the way they performed, how poor they were defensively again, is causing concern. And, and Martinez wants to put a as positive a spin as possible on that, but that's just the way he is. He he, he doesn't see the point in, in castigating his players or in public at least, and and that is that is becoming an increasing problem with him and the support. It will be a problem as, as long as this run continues. But as as we saw last year, it won't be a problem should Everton get back to the kind of form that they, they have done under, under Martinez. But they just look a little way off that at the moment. What do supporters really want, though? I mean, if 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 he drops that mask and I don't even know if it's a mask he seems to be an upbeat kind of guy but if if he starts slamming all the players and, and starts being all down and everything it, it doesn't really augur too well I would have thought No it's, it's, it's that thin line though. it's that thin line between publicly debuting the players and, and maybe insulting people's intelligence supporters who just travelled to, to South Wales on a, on a Tuesday night don't want to see the team perform as Everton did they don't want to come back I haven't been told that the that the team's actually there's lots of positives to be taken from that performance so it's, it's that same line I'm, I, I agree it's a difficult one I, I think if you're the manager you, you've got to try and project positivities as much as possible but I also think there's certain circumstances and, and this probably applies to, to Brendan Rodgers and the new generation of managers that we're getting in, in the Premier League as, uh, as a whole that there are times when you can't really put a positive spin on things you've just got to hold your hands up and say things haven't worked out tonight it's not how I would want Everton to perform. I would, it's not I would want Liverpool to form whoever the team is and take it on the chin and move on. But but, it, but supporters also have to accept that, yeah, the managers aren't really going to take the play to task, especially head of a big game. So it, it, it is a very difficult one. Everton have let in more goals than anyone in the league, which is partly has to do with the fact that they let in six against Chelsea in, in, a, in a really extraordinary kind of a game. But... 
the the defensive side of things was always a concern with Roberto Martinez at at Wigan. You know, they played good football. They just couldn't stop landing goals. They eventually got relegated. I mean, Everton had a very well-drilled defence that David Moyes had put in place um, when Martinez took over, and maybe he benefited from that. It was a, it was a bit like when Arsene Wenger took over at Arsenal. You know, maybe there was that side of things was was already looked after. Has anything changed since since say, the beginning of last season? Is is, is there is there any obvious cause for for why they're suddenly letting in so many goals? I, I don't think tactically there's been a big change. If you look at the way Everton set up, it's it's very very similar. Uh, you've still got the, the flat back four with the full backs who look to get forward. You have Barry and uh, McCarthy in front, which is which is more of a defensive shield than say Brendan Rodgers has at Liverpool, where he just used Steven Gerrard. Uh, I think the biggest change of all is, is just deterioration in players. Uh, the two centre backs, uh, Phil Jagielka and Phil Van Dijkstam. Uh, Jagielka is now 32 and is on the back of a Paul World Cup and, and, a, and a poor 12 months. If you, if you trace back to the, the last Merseyside derby, it's Liverpool 1-4-0. Jagielka's down turn and form. He played that night despite not being fully fit and his down turn and form really started then and he's never really recovered. It went right through the World Cup and struggled for England and, and that's continued the start of this season. This time's 36 and he started show signs of, of wear and tear that wear is evident last year. So I, I think if there is a mistake, if this run continues, obviously if, if Everton can't get the defensive solidity back, it's that Martinez didn't recognise that in the summer. He didn't recognise the possibility that Everton were going to need bolstering in that position. And they, they do have John Stones who, who can slot in there and they look a lot more solid when he plays, essentially, but he's also been needed to play right back at times. So I, th- I think that the mistake during the summer, if there was one from Evans' point of view, it wasn't bringing in another centre-back to fill that age gap between Stones, who's, who's very young, and uh, Jack Yelkin and Distano were very senior. That it, it, it could be with the centre-back who's 26, 27, 28, who can come in and play at a consistent level. And, I think not doing that is, is what's undermining. Yeah, well, Liverpool seem to be struggling a little bit to integrate the new boys in particular, but they had that amazing night on, on Tuesday, the penalty shootout, which was pretty incredible, Tony. does Is that just a weird event that, that you take on its own terms that happens very rarely in football, or can you take any uh, deeper, I don't know, whether any deeper effect, for example, on, on Mignolet's confidence? Well, well Mignolet and confidence, it's... You just don't go together. Uh, I, I, I think that the, the time has come. I, I think football as a whole has accepted that Simon Mignolet isn't Liverpool's long-term goalkeeper. For me, that was evident last season. For me, he is everything that a Liverpool goalkeeper shouldn't be. He's uncertain. He, he, he can't sweep up. Uh, he doesn't inspire confidence in those in front of him. He is a decent shot stopper, although I think his shot stopping capabilities have, have been overrated. Uh, and I think he is fundamental to the kind of problems that Liverpool are having. Uh, everyone thought that all Liverpool would need to do would be new defenders and, and they would become a, a better defender automatically. But if you, you have a goalkeeper behind you who's so uncertain and doesn't command, it is very difficult to play uh, any kind of defensive role. So I, th- I think he is key to the problems that Liverpool are having. But having said that, I think there are also issues of how Liverpool set up. It's, I, I would argue that there is no more difficult team in the Premier League to play centre-back in than Liverpool. If if you look at whichever pair they put in there, they basically have a keeper behind them who doesn't uh, command. They have full-backs who are asked to play high and they have a, a holding midfielder in front whose job is to be constructive rather than destructive. So basically the, the majority of defending comes down to those two centre-backs. There is no systemic uh, defending other than what comes from the press and so when Liverpool don't press the centre-backs become very vulnerable very, very quickly and I, I just think that whole scenario of, of having a poor goalkeeper or a goalkeeper more than anything who isn't suited to Liverpool play and, and having a team that plays in a certain way very offensively means that the centre-backs are so exposed it becomes very, very difficult for them to do their job and I think that's becoming increasingly apparent Alright, Tony what's your prediction can Everton finally get one over in Liverpool? I think they can do. I think, to be fair, if, if you look at the way the two teams are playing, uh, Everton, despite their defensive weakness, look like a team that still knows what it's about when it's going forward. Liverpool don't have that cohesion at the moment, and the players don't have that uh, belief in one another. Yet. So I think this is a game that Everton can win, but having said that, 
that psychological hole that Liverpool have over Everton Anfield is, is hugely significant. And if Liverpool go into this game believing that they can win and Everton go into that thinking that they can't win, there will only be one outcome. I can't call it. I've, I've changed my mind several times over the last few days. And I, I, I think it will come down to whoever scores to get the first goal will go on and win. I think it'll be that simple. Tony Barrett, enjoy the game. Thanks a million. Cheers. Good to speak to you. Hairdryer is, is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Tony touched on the uh, their defensive midfield linchpin there again. Mm being maybe more constructive than destructive. Stephen Gerrard's his name. That was a nice way of putting it by Tony. Uh, and I'm one which I think recognises uh, the unique contribution that Stephen Gerrard has made to Liverpool Football Club and indeed English football as a whole. He's a man who's enriched the game greatly by his presence, by his actions. Uh, uh, and yet, there is a time limit really, isn't there, on the career of every football player and you do wonder how close to uh, to the sort of expiry date Stephen Gerrard's situation is. I mean, I I have to say that uh, I, um, I've been surprised that he has been even as good as he has been in this uh, in this kind of position that he's been playing more or less since the turn of the year. Um, I didn't think he, I mean, certainly Benitez never, never, thought of putting him there no no one really he was never successful in that position before um, maybe it was a case of it was the only position really that he that was left that he could play given that is the speed that he used to have oh, totally yeah I mean he used to be the player who would make more high intensity sprints than any um, not that there's any other kind of sprint but would do a greater proportion of his running at the high intensity level than anyone else in the division this was kind of one of the things that made him such a, an outstanding player. I mean, the reason Benitez would play him as off off the striker, even though he'd been a midfielder all his career, number one, he could finish, but number two, Benitez said because he has the strength to get to the second ball. So all of these little, um, you know, unexpected bounces of the ball, Gerard would get there ahead of anyone mm-hmm. and would be able to hammer a shot towards the goal. I mean, it's not exactly the most joined up way of playing you know if you think of it in those those terms it's not like really stringing things together in a nice style but you've got a guy who's quicker and stronger than most of the guys he's up against and obviously he's not anymore um, you know because of the age that he is now but you know at some at some point I think they're going to have to look at that I mean they're letting in a, a lot of goals they've got a player who is not I don't think suitable at all to play any, whatever but Whatever about his ability to pass the ball, which is which is still pretty good, mm-hmm. he's like a post sometimes for the, for the opposing opponent to run past. And even in the attacking sense, I actually think he's not doing enough for the team because it's it's making them very predictable. He kind of comes back, takes the ball off the central defender, and then is going to try and pick out someone in a wide position. You know, every time what's going to happen, he's never going to try a one-two. He's never not really going to come forward with the ball. He's going to move it usually wide everybody knows mm. what's what's coming I mean I think it's a big problem for them this year Suarez used to give them nobody knew what he was going to do any kind of a ball he would get latch onto it and you know more than more likely than not beat his man that's my favourite thing about watching Luis Suarez is the unpredictability totally yeah I mean even just the, the other day he scored his first couple of goals for Barcelona in a friendly you know in a friendly match against some under 19 team or something even then the the second goal is brilliant you know it's, it's a kind of a a turn uh, that the defender is never... It's almost a 270-degree turn and then a shot with his left foot. I mean, um, you lose that, it's, it's impossible to replace. That's the the end of proceedings, I believe. But we have got a really good show out there for you because so much more going on besides the football this weekend. The Ryder Cup, we previewed that with US Murph, uh, complete with jingoistic... Um, what would I call it? Posturing from Brian. He's really getting behind his boys... Uh, his Stars and Stripes boys there at the All-Ireland Final. We previewed that, the replay, I should say, with Morris O'Brien and Michael Cavanaugh, who's won eight of them for Kilkenny. And we spoke to uh, our first ever active NFL player. We've spoken to guys like Jim Kelly over the years, former Buffalo Bills 
quarterback, but Patrick Murray is a kicker for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's also from, well, he, he, he'll allow me to say he's from Ireland. I mean, his dad is from Monaghan and his uncle played very successfully for Monaghan in the 1980s. Patrick came home every summer and played a bit of Gaelic football over here. He's in the US these days and uh, going really well. First few games in the, in the NFL for him and he's a really nice guy as well. So have a listen for that if you do have any more time today. Thanks very much for checking out the football podcast. You can also find us, uh, find more info on our website, secondcaptains.com. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you too, Alan. Thanks a million for listening and we'll talk to you again soon. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.